Hi, I'm David Boris, Canadian historian and host of Curious Canadian History, a bi-weekly deep dive into the wild, worrisome, and wonderful world of Canadian history. This season, we've covered Nazis in Alberta, the Palestinian partition, and even the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. We also have eight seasons worth of back episodes, all right there for your listening pleasure. Check out new episodes of Curious Canadian History every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, everyone. We have a special bonus episode from another show for Secret Life of Canada podcast subscribers. It's an episode from the CBC podcast Unreserved, a show that I am currently hosting. So if you haven't heard enough of me, you can go here and hear more. Um, The show takes you straight into the heart of Indigenous stories of this land, from Halifax to Haida Gwaii. And the show will introduce you to storytellers, cultural leaders, artists from First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities across the country. This episode you are about to hear is called Mayflower 400, a deep dive into American Thanksgiving. And it examines the Mayflower ship that pulled up onto the shores of Cape Cod 400 years ago. The merchant ship wasn't carrying its normal cargo of dry goods and wine, but carrying more than 100 people seeking a new world. But what they found there was not a new world. It was an old world, as old as the people who were already living there. Have a listen. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Phelan Johnson. 400 years ago, a ship pulled up on the shores of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The merchant ship wasn't carrying its normal cargo of dry goods and wine. This time, it carried more than 100 people. People seeking religious freedom and a new way of life. Seeking a new world. But the world they found across the ocean wasn't new. It was as old as the people who lived there. The Wampanoag people the people of the first light. It was as old as the corn, beans, and squash they grew, and as old as the songs they sang. This week on Unreserved, you've probably heard about the first meal the pilgrims and Native Americans shared. So today, we're going deeper into that history and finding out more about the Wampanoag people and how that boat's arrival changed everything. This year, to commemorate the arrival of the Mayflower, celebrations were planned. In the United States, Wampanoag people were consulted in the lead-up to the Mayflower 400 events. This time, they wanted their history and truths at the forefront, and to examine what it meant when the Mayflower landed on this side of the ocean. Things weren't unfolding in exactly the same way in Plymouth, England, when art historian Stephanie Pratt was invited to advise on an art piece that was going to celebrate the Mayflower's voyage, she decided to help correct its course. And in doing so... She brought clarity to the conversation about the Mayflower in a part of the world where Indigenous history is not as well known. We've reached her at her home in Devon, England. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. Hi there. So this project you advised on is uh, part of your involvement with Mayflower 400. Uh, It's a massive program of events, mostly in the UK, uh, to mark the Mayflower voyage that happened 400 years ago. So how did you get involved with Mayflower 400? Well, it's sort of a a slow build-up, I suppose. I began probably in about 2018 to advise on what was called the Educational Committee or the the Educational Program for Mayflower 400. And I kind of was snuck in by a friend of mine. Um, His name is Danny Riley, and he is probably one of the spearhead people 
along with his wife, Angela Sherlock, who have really been very critical of the whole process, the whole buildup, the, the, the complete, um, well, what they would call sanitizing of history. And so you had some reservations about taking on this role. Can you can you tell us why that was? Well, I think Danny himself said, you know, this is going to be kind of a poison chalice because um, you know that you're going to be helping make them feel better about what they're doing. And so I know that you were part of shaping a massive art installation near where the Mayflower would have departed Plymouth, England, near where you are today. Um, and it's a it's a sculpture of lights that spells out the words, no new worlds. Um, can you tell me about that sculpture? Well, the, the artists that were involved in that sculpture they're called Still Moving, and they've known each other for many years. And I think when the first uh, announcement of funding for art projects under the Mayflower umbrella came up, these guys took advantage. But they admitted to me later on that they, at the beginning, had really no idea what the Mayflower was or what it what it represented, certainly not what it represented to, to Indigenous peoples in North America. So they were told at the beginning, you know, you have to be careful with this. But what they came up with was the idea that they would have in lights the words, the new world. And they presented that to locals in Plymouth, some of whom were very critical and said, no, you cannot, absolutely cannot do that. But you need to talk to Stephanie. So they came up to Exeter, where I live, and asked me about it. And my very first reaction was, no, that's ridiculous. You absolutely cannot say the new world. What are you talking about? There never was a new world. We live on one planet. This is what it is, you know, (laughs) trying to, like, teach little kids, I guess. That's how I felt. And, um, And they were very, very grateful and they listened and luckily they had another idea which was to put up a changing sign or changing signage which would move between the words new worlds no new worlds no world and and so forth so they had several iterations that they would use and I said yes that's that's the one you need to go with I do think that is just such a rudimentary kind of thing that a lot of people don't understand that how could there how how could this part be new and that part be old. <laughs> <laughs> so as an indigenous art historian, I, I imagine, you know, this could be kind of a difficult position for you because I'm sure you have come up against many inaccurate portrayals of indigenous people before, you know. What's it like for you to be in a position now, a position where maybe you have an opportunity to sort of uh shift shift that gaze or shift that perspective? Well, that's a great question because I would have to say there really aren't any, if you like in scare quotes, accurate pictures because the artists who were depicting this often several centuries after it happened, these artists were told you're to represent it this way because this is the way we want to tell our story. And so the image becomes the way that we start to think about these things, and particularly the hierarchical and structured image, which is the image of the kind of heroic uh, explorer, quote-unquote discoverer, who comes and these people are shirking away, and 
quietly uh, disappearing. I mean, there's a very famous image of Vespucci, you know, Amerigo Vespucci, who some claim the name America comes from. I'm not I'm not totally sure, but he's he's an erect and I mean that in the sexual sense, man landing on the shore where a, a naked woman is lying in a hammock and she's being awakened. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's no other way to read that. But as a gendered, violent intrusion, rape into um, a kind of sleepy, unaware um, landscape with a sleepy, unaware young woman. I mean, it's just, it's frightening how strong the ideology is in most images. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you get a, an artist like Kent Monkman, you know, the Cree artist. I mean, he's just, he's really showing that up, how how painting was one of the huge um, drivers of this engine of control and dominance and, and, you know, blinding people to the truth. That's really interesting. And I think, you know, what you were talking about, that, you know, that image, that Vespucci image, kind of really demonstrates the thing that a lot of Indigenous people have been saying. It draws that parallel between, you know, um, violence on women on this land and violence on the land and how those things are so related. Absolutely. So when the Mayflower arrived in North America, it landed in Wampanoag Territory, as you mentioned. Um and you have Nakoda and Dakota ancestry, you know, th- th- did you have hesitation about speaking on behalf or for another nation? Oh, yes, absolutely I did. And I I am so in awe of Linda Coombs, Paula Peters, and many of the others who did, who did have to speak up internationally, but they have a, they carry a huge burden of having to do that again and again and again. And somebody wrote, um, well, actually, I'm very lucky in having a research student, not my research student, but somebody else's who's in contact with me. And I've just read the third chapter of her dissertation. And she said she interviewed some Wampanoag interpreters over there, and they have to have what they called heavy shoulders, because they have to keep going over this ground again and again and again, and it hurts. It's painful. It's, you know, and so part of what I'm saying is, okay, let me share it a little bit. So there's always been this contest about how to tell the story, who gets to talk, what do we emphasize? And um, I was just trying to get it into the indigenous hands as much as possible. And so with all this reframing that, you know, you're attempting to do, do you do you see this working? Do you see people's minds shifting? Do you see that that reframing that we, I think we so need? Do you see that happening? Um, in small places, maybe even with individuals. I mean, I've talked to the No New Worlds artists uh, who've been down on the site and have had people wander in and want to know what it's all about. And they told me an anecdote about people coming and sort of cheering when the word new and worlds went up, like, oh, new worlds, now I get it. And then when the word no went up, how the reaction changed slightly in some of the visitors who said, what, you know, what's that mean? And Or why say no, it's such a negative word. And so um, they did have a bit of reaction and I think generally the Plymouthians have accepted it. 
I'm not going to say everybody's welcomed it, but um, maybe they realize the time is now for change. I think more than anything, I want the sculpture to allow people to say what they feel and what they think and to, to stop silencing people. We've had a lot of non-narration of people's experiences and viewpoints, and we need to start listening. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. No problem. I've enjoyed it very much. Stephanie Pratt is an independent art historian and a cultural advisor to the Native Spirit Film Festival in the UK. She is also a member of the Crow Creek Dakota Tribe of Fort Thompson. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169, and Native Voice 1. I'm Phelan Johnson. Digging into the little-known history of the Mayflower, just ahead of American Thanksgiving on the show today. This year marks the 400th anniversary of the boat's arrival. And when the Mayflower first sailed up to the shore, the Wampanoag people, the people of the first light, welcomed the newcomers. They shared many things with them, including planting techniques. That transfer of planting knowledge became the basis of what people now call Thanksgiving. But not everyone is thankful for what happened next. Disease. War. Genocide. And that religious freedom that the pilgrims sought was not something they were willing to extend to the Wampanoag, who already called that land home. For many people, the Mayflower 400 isn't something to celebrate. I feel like um, celebrating this kind of reminds me of people celebrating Columbus Day, and I don't feel like it should be celebrated. I feel like, if anything, like for Wampanoag people, they typically don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Instead, it's a day of mourning. I feel like that's what they should be also. That's Alyssa Harris, a historical educator in Plymouth, Massachusetts. You'll be hearing more from her a little later on in the show. Celebrations surrounding the Mayflower have been contentious for a long time. In 1970, plans for the 350th anniversary of the ship's voyage included a replica ship being built in Massachusetts. But what organizers didn't know is that activists from the American Indian Movement, or AIM, would occupy that replica, the same way the English who arrived 350 years earlier occupied Wampanoag land. AIM was occupying lands from coast to coast. In fact, they were in the middle of an occupation of Alcatraz in 1970 when they also took over the Mayflower in Plymouth. These protests were early in the American Indian movement and attracted a lot of attention. Kent Blancett is a Cherokee Creek, Choctaw, Shawnee, Potawatomi professor of history and indigenous studies at the University of Kansas. He joins me now from Lawrence, Kansas. Hi, Kent. Welcome to the show. Hi, Phelan. Thanks for having me. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the American Indian Movement or AIM, can you briefly, I know it's a, it's a quite a big history, but can you briefly tell us, you know, who they were? So the American Indian Movement uh, is born out of uh, Minneapolis. And out of that, uh, what was happening is a lot of harassment was happening with Native peoples on the streets. And particularly uh, police were uh, targeting Native peoples uh, with extra large amounts of arrests during this time period. And the American Indian Movement started out as, as kind of the Red Patrol um, in the late 1960s, uh, 67, 68. Um, and these patrols were kind of fashioned after a little bit of the Black Panther Party in the sense of going out and making sure that these arrests were legitimate, that Native peoples weren't getting abused by the police. And then it eventually turned into a larger movement and call for activism um, by 1968, um, 
due to uh, at least a lot of Native women, uh, elder women in the community there in Minneapolis. They began to suggest that there needed to be a national call or movement. Uh, they first started out with the name CIA, uh, but uh, they obviously thought that that was a bad acronym uh, <laughs> in regards to Indian countries. So they quickly changed it uh, to the American Indian Movement. And of course, out of that, they, they began also channeling in a lot of protests, going to different churches and staging demonstrations, acquiring uh, kind of more of a national presence and media presence um, as advocates for a, a kind of national movement for indigenous rights. Take us to the scene of what happened on Thanksgiving in 1970. Uh, you know, just if you can give us sort of a brief summation, what did it look like on the Mayflower replica that day? Yeah, the the ship was just kind of this uh, triple-masted ship. It was made to, to essentially look like the original uh, ship that the, the pilgrims had taken over to Massachusetts in the starting of this Massachusetts colony. And, you know, it had uh, mannequins on it. It was it was mainly set up for tourists to be able to kind of walk through, maybe get some sense of nostalgia of the harrowing trip that they had taken to be able to land and create this new colony. Uh, it became a symbol that needed to be confronted. And Russell Means poignantly understood that confrontation. Uh, Frank James, who was a Wampanoag leader in, in Tolok, oftentimes times remained kind of in the background. They would later go to the press and they would tell the press, you know, this is a direct quote from uh, James. Uh, he basically says, we are not here to cause trouble. There's a difference of opinion here between the national Indians, reference to American Indian movement, and we locals about how we should mark this day. Uh, but we are agreed that we need to call the white man's attention to our problems and that we need to do it in a nonviolent way. So everything that it transpired had to be done in that message, at least by um, James's message, this kind of nonviolent uh, activism or, or protest. Um, and then, of course, they bury Plymouth Rock. Uh, they then, after burying Plymouth Rock, uh, next uh, go to the Mayflower. They climb on board the Mayflower. They not only take it up, but they climb the mast. They take the Union Jack off the top of it. They throw the flag <laughs> down. They also take a cannon and throw the cannon off. Uh, there's a mannequin to um, immortalize uh, one of the original captains of the Mayflower. They throw the mannequin off. Um, and it was about that time that the police showed up. And they agreed to peacefully leave the, the Mayflower, too. Mm -hmm. uh, so... The, the Mayflower II doesn't last very long um, in the sense of the occupation. It was only occupied by 25 uh, of the protesters, and there was a total of a, between 100 to 150 is what uh, we have in the historical record of, of those who showed up on that first day of national mourning. And then aim at the end of this movement, they leave. Uh, so, um, you know, they capture the press and they leave. Uh, the Wampanoag are left to say, do we do, we do this again? Um, and... Uh, Tall Oak and, 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 of course, Frank James decide, yeah, we have to do this every single year. But they also, you know, honor this as a day of mourning, um, that this is not a day to celebrate. This is not a day that people should basically be eating to gluttonous proportions and then watching football. This is a day that they should be reflecting on the true history of this nation. Um, and out of that, maybe learning a little bit about equity, learning a little bit about how to make this a better world or a more just world. So for the Wampanoag on this Mayflower to this replica ship, they asked for the support from the American Indian Movement in 1970. Uh, AIM shows up. How does it end for the Wampanoag? Did they get what they wanted out of this demonstration? Uh, I think that that 
that they succeeded. I think for for the Wampanoag, they took over the message. AIM didn't control the message of, of that movement or that singular protest any longer. It set the stage, but in setting the stage, that's what Red Power was meant to do, to come in, set the stage for localized Native nations to take over and control the message. And you know what? It also set the stage for media to continue to return to that site um, year mm-hmm. after year uh, for the next 50 years. And if anything, it brought greater attention to Wampanoag issues. And and so now it's 50 years later and the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, they're still fighting the government, you know, over rights for their lands. This fight is happening as the celebrations for the Mayflower anniversary are once again underway. What does this say about how far we've come? I think how far we've come, uh, we, we've we've got a long way to go. I mean, we got it, but we also got to put it in historical context. I mean, from um, at, at least um, in in the U.S. side of this equation, uh, we have to understand that um, it, in 1969 you still had termination as a policy, where they were terminating uh, the federal trust responsibility with over 109 Native nations. They've done this since 1953. Uh, they were still relocating Native peoples to cities, hoping that we would just melt into these cities and, and lose our tribal identities. Um, so, whereas they were essentially destroying uh, tribal nations and, and uh, the responsibility through treaty rights to those nations. They were also destroying individual connections with their communities. There was still an onslaught of assimilationist and acculturation curriculum. Um, our curriculum in this country was deeply segregated in regards to Native peoples not knowing or learning our true histories in public schools or boarding schools and the like. Uh, We can see this with the white papers, even in in First Nations. Um, Mm -hmm. We can see this with efforts to to terminate treaty responsibilities and obligations with First Nations peoples. These leaders had to make a stand. They had to do what they had to do, even if it meant, you know, throwing off a mannequin of, of a Mayflower. Um, And it changed and sent a rippling effect into policy. Because after this, in 1970, this is when Richard Nixon would return Taos Blue Lake to Taos Pueblo. He would end relocation as a program with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He would officially end termination. We would have another 26 pieces of self-determination legislation and 29 Supreme Court cases um, affirming indigenous rights in this country. And what also happened here is that Turtle Island birthed a global indigenous movement. I mean, yeah. if, especially if we were to look back at, you know, what's recently transpired, Oak Flat, um, you know, to, to Bears Ears Monument, to uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, stretching back to blocking Keystone's expansion, uh, to the Idle No More movement. Um, all this is also transpiring and creating networks that go beyond borders. We don't recognize those borders. The medicine medicine line um, is is just what it is. It didn't exist. Um, this this geopolitical border between our countries was not something that we accepted. And in fact, we're beginning to go beyond those borders in our organize in, in our organizational frameworks. Um, to look at Standing Rock, it was fascinating as a scholar of Alcatraz. 
and to see that reporters were um, in 2016 saying, oh, this is the first time over 10,000 people have gathered uh, for a movement. And I, I had to laugh to myself, you know, it's like, as, as far as we've come, we still have, uh, we still have three steps back um, because we're not educating still. Um, still, we, we, we're, we're sitting with the same segregated curriculum oftentimes in our, our K through 12 schooling um, across not only America, but also Canada. And, and these this has to change, right? In order for us to be able to kind of change the hearts and minds, but also to create viable solutions to these problems, um, like the expansion of pipelines in our territories, uh, or the the illegal taking still of, of native lands, or the discrimination that we face uh, from from overt arrests or militarized police states that come in and throw dogs and tear gas and percussion grenades on our people who are there to pray, who are there to basically ensure that you know, our ancestors and their resting places are, are treated with respect. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, walk us through all of that history. I think, you know, I, I'm a bit of a history nerd myself, so this is all very interesting, and we'll have to have you back on sometime. I really appreciate it. I, I thank you for this chance to be able to geek out. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> you just reach out. I'm here for you, buddy. That's awesome. <laughs> Kent Blancett is the author of A Journey to Freedom, Richard Oakes, Alcatraz, and the Red Power Movement. He is a professor of history and indigenous studies at the University of Kansas. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169, and Native Voice 1. I'm Phelan Johnson. Today we're taking a look at the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower's arrival in Massachusetts. Wampanoag historian Linda Jeffers Coombs has devoted much of her life to challenging inaccuracies about what happened when pilgrims arrived on the shores of her nation. One of the most pervasive myths she hears is the story of a Wampanoag translator named Squanto. Squanto is often described as a friendly guide to the pilgrims, who helped them with their first harvest. But his real story is much darker. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the show. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me. So for those who might not know, what is the mythologized version of Squanto's story? Well, the mythologized version is that, you know, as, as you just mentioned, that he was their translator, their interpreter. So he was, you know, to the English, a good guy. And, you know, to many Wampanoag or Native people generally, he's seen as a traitor. But even that um, doesn't get at, you know, his entire story. And so what is the real story of Squanto? You know, what, what do you want people to know about him? Well, prior to the pilgrims settling in 1620, there had been a hundred years of ships from uh, Europe, not just England, but Europe, France and Spain, Portugal, coming, going back and forth. The pilgrims were just the first to settle and bring women and children. Um, but the other what people were fishing, exploring, trading, you know, this sort of thing. And another thing that they were also doing was, you know, certain captains, not all of them, but going up and down the coast and kidnapping people, kidnapping men. And they would uh, take them back to England or Spain and sell them into slavery or, you know, march them through the streets as, uh, as novelties, you know, as specimens. Because people that were not Christian were not considered to be human. And Squanto was one of those people who got kidnapped. We don't even really know how old he was at the time. He was from the village of Patuxet, which was where the pilgrims landed and settled. And he was kidnapped in 1614. 
and was gone for five years. Eventually made passage back to Patuxet in 1619. And when he did, what he saw was the results of a huge epidemic that had swept through the area. Uh, as far as we know, this particular ec epidemic uh, was brought over by European fishermen or traders and had traveled a 15-mile-wide swath right down the coast. It, it affected about four different Native nations, effectively devastating entire populations. With the Wampanoag, uh, we lost 75 to 90 percent of our entire population in a two-year span between 1616 and 1618. At that time, or just prior to that, we had had 69 villages that comprised the Wampanoag Nation with an average of 1,000 people per village. So we're numbering 70,000, maybe more people. Say we lost like 50,000 people, bang, in, in two years. Patuxet was one of them. As far as we know, Squanto was the only survivor. And the reason that he survived was that he had been kidnapped. So when he came home in 1619, he literally stepped off the ship and was looking at broken down homes, overgrown cornfields, and bones were literally strewn all over the place because so many people got sick so fast and died within a couple of days that there was no one to take care of the sick and no one to bury the dead. And so Squanto's story, you know, is very much tied to Indigenous slavery, but he wasn't the only Indigenous person to be taken into slavery. How widespread was the enslavement of Indigenous people? It was very widespread. In this area, you know, clearly it began even before the Pilgrims settled, and it is something that persisted throughout the 17th century, and particularly after King Philip's War uh, of 1675, people were shipped out wholesale into slavery in the West Indies or, or other places simply to get rid of them so that the English could have the land. You mentioned when he came home, when Squanto came home, um, disease had devastated his people. Um, did he get sick? What, what happened to him? He did not get sick right away. He did serve as an interpreter and a guide. He, he took the pilgrims on trading voyages up north to what now is Maine and, and all this sort of thing. And he also, uh, I like to give him a little bit of credit and think that after being enslaved and coming home and finding everybody dead, that he lost his last marble um, because he was doing things like telling Native people, you know, if you don't do such and such a thing, you know, the English keep that plague under the floorboards and they'll, they can whip it out on you at any time. He was spreading rumors of war that Massasoit was going to, you know, attack the English. And this was after this alliance of uh, mutual agreement in 1621, where Massasoit signed an agreement with them to essentially to protect one another, to come to each other's aid in the event of someone else's encroachment. For that offense, Squanto should have been turned over to Massasoit because there was treason, essentially. And the English are like, oh, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. He's our interpreter. He's our tongue. We need him. So they just violated the terms of the treaty right there at their convenience, which was kind of the M.O., as it were, you know, of, of the way that they came into the country and the way things have kind of gone since. But then Squanto uh, took sick in 1622. He developed a fever and he was bleeding from the nose. So we don't know why. 
what caused that, but he did pass away from that. And that was in 1622. For listeners who might not know, Massasoit was the leader of the Wampanoag Confederacy at that time. So in many ways, it seems like Squanto was caught in the middle between the pilgrims uh, that he kept helping and the Wampanoag leadership. So what happened to him? I think Massasoit saw it as a benefit because, I mean, I think Massasoit and other leaders did speak some English, some French, some Dutch, because those were the people that were coming from Europe to trade. And they at least know how to say, no, I'm not giving you five bucks for that. You know, a small understanding of different languages. But Squanto had been over in England for five years, so he had a much better command. And so I think that was useful, but it just came to be a matter of whether or not he could be trusted. You know, even with or without Squanto, there were a lot of Wampanoag people and a lot of other Native people who did not want to ally, you know, as Massasoit did with the English. They just wanted to get rid of them. And that was based on the the hundred years of other ships coming over and the disease that they had brought with them and the kidnapping and the enslavement. And, you know, it just wasn't looking too good to start forming alliances with people who brought these things to, to us, you know. So. Mm-hmm. so for decades, you've been working hard to change educators um, and teachers to tell the real story of Squanto. Have you seen have you seen perceptions change around Squanto and his story? A, a lot of the work that I do has been with teachers, which, you know, in the last decade or so, at least I have seen teachers wanting to know the history, the true history. What actually happened, including Squanto, but everything else that surrounds that time period or or other time periods. Um, They want to impart accurate information, not myths and fairy tales to the kids, you know, uh, which I think is wonderful. And, And for the most part, I found people to be willing to hear all of the tough stuff that has happened because it, you know, it's not a pretty history. You know, teachers have been, you know, very willing to to listen and, and want to figure out how to break information down for certain age groups and grades and, you know, and all this sort of thing, which, which is wonderful. Yeah, that must be such a nice change to see. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time today to talk to us about all of this. I think it's really given me a different perspective on Squanto's story. Oh, well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Linda Jeffers-Coombs is an author and historian from the Wampanoag tribe of Gayhead in Massachusetts. So, what's it like to be steeped in the history that most people never learned? Alyssa Harris is a historical educator at Plymouth Patuxent, a living history museum. The museum has an all-Indigenous staff that give both historical teachings about the Wampanoag, but also offer a modern perspective. I feel like it's like the best way to learn. Right when you walk in, it feels like you're 12,000 years ago. It feels like you're in that time that people were living and you can see what homes look like. You can see what, you know, like a family, like what a family home site would look like. You can see how people dressed what we ate, what we made. Like I do arts and crafts too. I'm there. I'll weave bags, I'll fire clay. When I talk to visitors, I'll say Massachusetts instead of Massachusetts. I'll say Patuxet instead of Plymouth. 
And, you know, like if I'm making a certain dish, I might see it in Wampanoag. That's Alyssa Harris, a historical educator at Plymouth, Patuxet. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169, and Native Voice 1. I'm Phelan Johnson. It's a word you've probably heard, wampum. But what exactly is wampum? Wampum comes from the quahog shell, which is found in particular in coastal southeastern New England. And it's a very hard shell, which the more mature shells in certain waters will have a really deep purple color and then gradations of white to purple in the shell. And it's something that was harvested for sustenance because the quahog is food for us. And the the beads that were made from it were considered extremely valuable in terms of adornment and also in the making of these belts, which in some cases would be given from one leader to another as a form of a treaty. And were actually given to colonial leaders as well. That's Paula Peters. She's from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe and is an advisor for the Mayflower 400 events and programming. Wampum has been used by many different nations since time immemorial. The shell beads are woven together and can tell a story. And when the Mayflower 400 events were being planned, Paula Peters was asked to help reframe that story from an Indigenous perspective. Welcome to the show, Paula. Hi, thanks for having me. So why was it important to you to become involved with the Mayflower 400 events? Well, becoming involved with Mayflower 400 was not an easy choice to make. There were many within my own community who questioned whether there was sincerity on the part of the people who were planning the commemoration of the Mayflower to actually allow us to tell our story in our voice. So it was a challenge from the beginning, but I felt like it was important to take the opportunity to at least try and to elevate our voice internationally. And that's really what we've been able to do. And one of the stories that's frequently left out of the history books is that of King Philip. Can you tell me who King Philip was and a bit about King Philip's war? Yeah, well, certainly. His actual name was Medicom, and he was the son of Massasoit Usamequin. Usamequin was the leader who originally formed the alliance with the pilgrims who came over on the Mayflower. And within a generation, that alliance eroded very quickly. To make a long story short, it was mostly over Wampanoag sovereignty and the land grabs that were taking place as a result of the colonies bringing English law and having English law to rule over the Wampanoag people, the indigenous people, and using it really unjustly against the Wampanoag. So by the time Usamequin's son, Metacom, became leader after Usamequin's death, he recognized what had been happening to his people and he assembled the warriors and assembled the the people to, to challenge what had happened to them. The war that bears his name, the King Philip's War, occurred between 1675 and 1676 and it is to this day considered the bloodiest war that ever was fought on American soil. And the colonies did overtake the Wampanoag and 
those who, who survived were either sold into slavery or had to go and live in what they called praying Indian towns and be converted to the English ways. And I know that um, spoils of war were a big thing at this time and that after uh, Medicom was killed, his wampum belt was taken and lost. Can you tell us a bit about that? He had a wampum belt that was estimated to be as much as nine feet long and probably nine inches wide. So it was a very significant wampum belt. And for those that don't understand the significance of the the wampum belts, and particularly this type of belt, which was a community belt, would have been something that people in the community contributed to generation after generation. For it to have been that long, for it to have been nine feet long, I imagine it was something that Metacom's father, Usamequin, originally held. And the wampum beads would be carefully made and then woven into the belt as a tapestry, really, telling the story of the tribal people. So it was like a historic document to us, a a living document, and it, it told our story for generations And it was something that a tribal leader would have held very dear. You know, it would be like the crown jewels to the queen. Once the belt was taken, it was sent to the king of England, along with a war report, as a spoil of war, as a gift to the king. We have not got any information about what happened to it afterwards. The king replied that he did not receive the belt or the um, war report, and we've actually been looking for it ever since. Hmm. And for the Mayflower 400 events, you were part of the creation of a new wampum belt. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that belt and how it was made? Right. It's not actually part of Mayflower 400. It came out of those relationships, um, but it's an independent project that we were funded by the British Arts Council to create a new wampum belt in that same tradition, in that same community tradition where we engaged our Wampanoag families and tribes and developed a design for the belt. We engaged Wampanoag artisans to create the beads. The entire process was done at a community level, where we brought the belt out into powwows and socials and even went into people's homes and had people come and do private weaving sessions with it to put it together. Over a hundred people were engaged in the process of making this belt. And one of the reasons why it was um, so important to us to create this belt is because I'd been in the UK and I had been looking for actively looking for what had happened to Medicom's belt and searching the archives in the British um, Museum and talking with other historians and researchers and continue to look for this belt. It's been generations of people have been looking for it. And one of the things that we talked about was the fact that in the UK, you could say, okay, we're looking for a wampum belt. They had no idea what a wampum belt was. So the project in itself was, it was a community project for us as tribal people, but it also serves to educate the people of England and Europe as to what we are 
are looking for, which I think is is a huge step in the right direction. The belt was on display in Southampton, England, and over 6,000 people viewed the display. We still hold out hope that someone will see that, understand the value of what we're looking for, and help us to find it. I hadn't even thought of that. That's so interesting. So 400 years after the Mayflower took off from England and arrived in what is now the U.S., why was it important for you to recreate this wampum belt, you know, to uh, to educate people in the U.K.? Um, but were there other things that you wanted to people to get out of this creation of the belt? Letting them know that we're looking for Medicom's belt. We're letting them know that we are still here, that the Wampanoag are still a very vital tribe of people, and that our history matters. For so long, the story of the Wampanoag has been really romanticized, and the true story of how the Wampanoag were treated is marginalized, to say the least. So this... 400th anniversary has become an opportunity to to elevate and balance that story. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time today uh, to educate us. I'm coming to you from Dish with One Spoon territory. I'm Haudenosaunee from Six Nations, so I was really fascinated to learn more about wampum from a Wampanoag perspective. Oh, yeah. Six Nations and the Haudenosaunee used wampum just as much as the coastal tribes did. And I think that that's an example of how it was used intertribally. Clearly, there had to have been a rich relationship between uh, the Six Nations people and the coastal tribes in order to facilitate such beautiful wampum belts. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Paula. We come calm way, which is in my language, no problem. Paula Peters is a member of the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe and is an advisor to the Mayflower 400 programming and events. Wampum, Stories from the Shells of Native America, is currently touring. The Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe has resided in their territory in Massachusetts and eastern Rhode Island for 12,000 years. But the tribe wasn't federally recognized until 2007. With that recognition came 321 acres of reservation land. But a new court order puts their land trust in jeopardy. Danielle Hill is Mashpee Wampanoag and is a culture bearer. She joins me now from Cape Cod. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Waniki Sak, Natasuis, Danielle. It's really happy to be here today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, It's so nice to hear the language. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell us what happened to the section of the land that belongs to the Mashpee back in March. Well, on March 27th, uh, the federal government contacted our tribal chairman, and he, uh, the Department of Interior, the Secretary of Interior, um, had announced that they had decided to disestablish our reservation lands. And this has never been done before, so our chairman and our tribal council was in shock. And once word spread to the community, we were all completely just dumbfounded that something like this would be happening in 2020. And um, the reservation lands that we were hoping to put into trust, it was just 321 acres. So it wasn't a massive amount of land. So that was even more shocking that um, such a small amount would have been opposed 
by the very department that is supposed to uplift us and um, support our efforts for sovereignty. And so why did the government want to take the land away in the first place? Well, it's really unclear. Um, Supposedly, they are opposing our application for land into trust because there is a two-part criteria that they're saying that we didn't uh, pass, I guess. And essentially, they are asking tribes um, to prove that they were under federal jurisdiction in 1934. And... This could be looked at as just uh, like an obstacle course from our Mm -hmm. perspective, because Mm -hmm. we were essentially the first tribe to be contacted by the Europeans. So we have massive amounts of documentation and evidence. We technically weren't under any jurisdiction. We were our own people. We were our own tribe. Mm -hmm. We had our own reservation. So I just... Uh, explain to you sort of the legal nitty-gritty of what they're telling us. But to me, um, and to many of us who are just looking at this issue at face value, can say, you know what, this is this looks and smells like this is completely about money and politics mm-hmm. and economics. And all of a sudden, now that we're uh, pursuing economic development for mm-hmm. a gaming facility, now all of a sudden, the federal government is really looking a little bit closer at our application. And, and they're saying, actually, you're not a tribe and you weren't a tribe. So we're going to just take away your land. And honestly, it just sounds as if the former administration, who had ties to the other neighboring casinos in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, it looks as if they are just trying to literally pull a trump card and just take away our land to stop us from building a gaming facility. And so what was your response when the ruling to disestablish the reservation came down? I immediately felt angry. I felt confused. I felt disempowered. The tribe and the tribal members, we were on such we were in such a good place prior. So many wonderful things were happening because of our federal land trust, because of our our federal recognition. And so if I'm feeling this way, my tribal members are feeling this way too. And this is a burden that we've just been born into and we didn't ask for it. So we shouldn't have to carry around this anger you know, for another however many hundreds of years. Like, that's not fair to us. The piece that has all of us so outraged is that, you know, for 400 years, we have been trying really hard um, to preserve our lands, to have our livelihood, to maintain our culture, our language, you know, and just and just be the sovereign entity that was guaranteed to us. And, that, and we've been fighting that for 400 years. So now when we have a chance to have economic development, we still can't in 2021. It's still being like violently opposed. And that to me is greed at its core. And that is like just um, colonization, just still living and thriving and wanting to push so hard to keep us down. I mean, I, I thought we were beyond that, to be honest, but apparently not. What kind of precedent could this set for other Native American tribes in the U.S.? You know, if this has happened once, can this happen again? If if the federal government has the audacity to attempt to take the Mashpee-Wampanoag tribal lands away, then that means that their precedent has been set, that it could that attempt could happen again to other tribes. 
on the receiving end, we are trying to um, set the precedent from the public's positioning that we are not going to let this happen. What happened since the initial ruling in March? So the initial ruling happened in March, and then May 3rd, we had our prayer protest. And then June 5th, Judge Paul Friedman, he ruled uh, that the Secretary of the Interior's, their decision was arbitrary and uh, and a complete abuse of power, essentially, and that they have to go back and reevaluate our evidence for our land into trust application. So now we just realized that the in August, the Department of the Interior appealed uh, Judge Paul Friedman's decision. So right now, I don't know where things are standing. And it just sounds like another attempt to prolong this and essentially mm-hmm. continue to stop us from our gaming facility and our other economic development ventures. And so, you know, with a change in presidency, do you do you think the situation will change? I think that with the change in presidency, absolutely, the situation will change for us and for tribes across the nation. They have already expressed that they are willing to partner or to listen to tribes' needs and to reestablish the uh, consultation process that was happening between the White House and and tribes um, that President Obama had put in place. Um, Hopefully, they will reevaluate some of the decisions that had been made by President Trump about, you know, taking away some of our sacred sites, not protecting some of our uh, national sites. But I'm confident that uh, the new administration will honestly pass the H.R. 312 Reservation Act, because that is an act of Congress that will prevent any administration in the future from trying to do this again. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time today. Um, This is a a whole new era in in the States right now with everything that's going on, and I I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for just um, providing an outlet for others to hear our story. Danielle Hill is Mashpee Wampanoag and is a culture bearer for her tribe. That's it for this week's episode of Unreserved. If you want to get in touch with us, send us an email to unreserved at cbc.ca or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. This episode was produced by Stephanie Cram, Kyle Muzika, Katie Toth, Logan Purley, and Anna Lazowski. I'm Phelan Johnson. Nyawagoa for listening. You've been listening to a special bonus episode from Unreserved. You can subscribe for free and listen to more episodes on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.